Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. This weekend's message is from Tyler McKenzie. He's the lead pastor here at Northeast. We get to uh, bring to an end a series we've been in for the better part of two months now uh, that we've called From Death to Life, From Death to Life, in which we have studied that, Jesus' death on the cross and Jesus' resurrection back to life. Three weeks leading into Easter, we did cross theology. The three weeks coming out of Easter, we've done resurrection theology. And the premise of the series has been pretty simple. If we could like line up the disciples, line up the witnesses, line up, get all the women who saw the empty, to all them, like all the Marys, because there's lots of Marys, get all the Marys on stage, and we could ask them, what up? How did you, how did you understand the crucifixion? How did you understand the resurrection then in the first days? Those are the principles we've been expounding for you. And the reason why we feel like we have to get these right at a historical and theological level is that this is the core essential of our faith. There is nothing more Christian than the cross and the empty tomb. The apostle Paul calls it the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, that Jesus died, buried, risen from the dead. So look, if we get nothing else right, we need to try our best to get this right. And that's what we've been trying to do. Now, for those of you who haven't been with us thus far in the resurrection series, a quick review for you. Uh, In week one, uh, we established this. The resurrection was understood first, first as a vindication of Jesus. First, note takers, get your pens ready and rolling. Okay, now when I say first, I literally mean chronologically like first. This was the knee jerk reaction of the disciples. Jesus has died. He's in a tomb on Saturday. Now all of a sudden on Sunday, he's in the room with us. He's not a ghost. He's eating fish. He's talking. He's telling us to touch his battle scars. Like this is fun, right? What's happened, right? Well, this is what they thought first. They thought maybe we didn't lose after all. (laughs) Said a bit differently, the resurrection actually casts a retrospective light backwards validating Jesus' cross, validating his claims and validating his place. The resurrection made Good Friday good if you will. That's what we covered in week one. Week two, uh, we covered that the resurrection was understood second, first as a vindication of Jesus, second, second as a responsibility of ours. Before they celebrated resurrection as a future heavenly promise, they actually embraced it as a present earthly responsibility. Now, y'all see that hand in the back, go ahead. Tyler, how do you know that? Well, it's the classic Jesus answer. Because Jesus said so. See that hand in the back. Well, what did Jesus say? What did Jesus say about his resurrection? How did he interpret it for his disciples? We looked at that last week. Many of you, I recognize the faces. You were here last week. And so you know, we did an extended Bible study portion where we read all four gospel accounts of Jesus' resurrection. Some of you don't remember it because you were like, you'd see that was the nappy time for you during church, okay? But but for those of you who stuck with me, we looked at Jesus' specific words to his disciples regarding resurrection. And you know what you saw? It wasn't really about future heaven. It was about commissioning his disciples here on earth. Now, a quick timeline for you. Again, nerdy note takers, you'll, you'll like this. Everything that we've talked about up to this point 
basically took place on this timeline. For those of you who don't know, uh, Good Friday took, took place on, on Passover weekend, probably AD 30 or 33. More details as to why it was those years, but we don't have time for that today. Now, for the next 40 days after Jesus' death and resurrection, according to Acts chapter one, <coughs> these were the days in which Jesus appeared, ministered to, and taught his disciples. This is when he's vindicated as risen from the dead. This is also when he commissions them with their responsibility. Then on the 40th day, it says Jesus ascended to his throne um, in heaven. And for the next 10 days, the disciples wait for the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes during the Feast of Pentecost and that's when the church is born. But it's during that first 40 days that we get those first two points, how they wrestle with the resurrection, a vindication of Jesus, a responsibility of ours. Now today... We're going to look at how they worked out the resurrection after that, as they start to live, as the years pass, as persecution comes, as they build the church. Where do they go next? Well, that leads us to point number three today. The resurrection was understood third and ultimately as the destiny of everything. It was the early Christian belief and still ours today that one day our bodies and our world will receive what it groans for in the present. And that is a resurrection. And I can't wait for the day. Romans chapter eight, verse 19 describes it like this. It's a powerful passage. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse, but with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And uh, we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the bodies he has promised us. And we were given this hope when we were saved. It's the word of the Lord. That's what we'll be focusing on today. It's the part that some of y'all been waiting on. Now, now before we, we get to some of these practical questions about what the final resurrection will be like and all that, I need to dispel one misnomer, if you will, uh, the character, if you will, of heaven. For many of us, growing up in church and growing up in this cultural context, our idea of heaven wasn't like some sort of future resurrection of our bodies and all things in a you know, resurrected world. Our idea of heaven involved clouds and wings and halos and and a pearly gate with St. Peter standing at the gate with a list. Sure, you're in, bye. You know, like that's, you know, there's a line, right? And people are getting buzzed down the clouds or going in, right? That's, this is what you think of, right? And I want you to, to know that uh, not only is that unbiblical, as we'll see today, but also it's just kind of boring. Like I would like wings and to fly in the clouds, maybe for 50 to 100 years, but after that, I need something more. Have you ever, uh, by the way, paid attention to the last verse of Amazing Grace? You ever pay attention to this? Do you pay attention to anything that you sing or do you just sing what's on the, sometimes you don't and you're like singing it and now your kids are in the back and you're like, oh, we can't sing that anymore, honey. Okay, anyway, so, so let me, Amazing Grace, you can sing, but let me show you the, the last verse here. Um, 
and you've probably sung this before. It says, when, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Yeah, you got The 9 a.m. wasn't ready for it. You were ready. Well done, 11 a.m. You've had your coffee. Okay, so yeah, now, now I love this hymn. Ain't nothing against it. It's an amazing hymn. But I just want you to know that 10,000 years of singing and then coming to the realization that we've no less days to sing. I love singing for the record. I love singing. I love it when, when my wife's, when Dar- well, I'm sure Darian and Lindsay and Acello will get the heavenly stage at some point, but 10,000 years and then no less days, that's not heaven to me. That's the other place. Especially if I gotta sit by some of y'all because some of y'all cannot sing. I've been out there before, you know, you just kind of flip a coin of who you're gonna sit beside every week, you know. God hears the song of my heart. He does. The rest of us hear your voice. I'm just saying. So, so the, the, point, the point is, the point is, is that, is that this sort of caricature that we have of heaven, is that it's, it's not biblical, and honestly, it's not all that compelling. Now, what is biblical? Well, this is our real hard Bible study portion of the sermon here, so, so bear with me. But I want you to see what Jesus and his contemporaries actually believed about resurrection. Okay? So a big slide here. Uh, first, You should know that during the time of Jesus, there were actually many diverse views about the afterlife. For example, there was this philosopher named Epicurus who had followers during Jesus' day called the Epicureans. And you know what they believed? Something very much like what people who don't believe in God believe today. They thought that when you died, it was just like pulling the plug. It was the eternal off switch. You just faded into non-existence. It didn't hurt. It was nothing to be afraid of. You just sort of you know, disappear and then decay into the ground, which by the way, sounds terrifying to me. It's always like, no, it's honest and courageous and there's nothing to be afraid of because you're just gone. But yeah, you know what else is gone? Love and everything else that makes life purposeful. So to say that that isn't at least unsettling to you, to live life without any hope after death, I think is being intellectually dishonest. Uh, Second, Uh, There's uh, not just the Epicureans, but there's also the Platonists or or Plato and uh, and those who followed him. Again, Plato, Epicurus, they're not alive during Jesus' time, but their followers are around. And you know what they believed? Something very much like our current cultural depiction of heaven. It was this idea that, uh, you know, the physical state that we live in was a lesser state. And one day we'll get to be in this sort of spiritual, better world. And the spiritual is better than the physical. That's what the Platonists believed. Now let's go to Judaism. Did you know that there was actually diversity within Judaism about the afterlife? There were the Sadducees who believed in what about the resurrection? Anybody know? Jesus gets in an argument about them, uh, with them about this. Anybody? They believed in no physical resurrection. They believed maybe that there was like a chill afterlife, dark place that people's souls, I guess, went to, but, but they didn't believe in a physical resurrection. But then there were the Pharisees and ding, ding, I thought the Pharisees were the bad guys, Tyler. Well, oftentimes, but in this case, they're actually the good guys. Because back to our big slide here, Jesus, Paul, and the early church actually believed like the Pharisees when it came to resurrection. Now, what did the Pharisees believe? Well, the Pharisees believed that after a period of physical death, everyone would be resurrected 
back to life. At the same time, there'd be one big final resurrection. And this is what after the gospels, the New Testament letters work out for us. And that shouldn't surprise you because the apostle Paul writes most of those letters and the apostle Paul was a, anyone? Pharisee, he was a Pharisee. Now, uh, Jesus affirms this view in John chapter five, verse 29, several other places, but this is probably the most clear example. He says, those who have done good will rise. It's a Greek word for physical resurrection, arise to experience eternal life. And those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. So he believes in this sort of final resurrection. Now here's the critical difference though. Back to our slide. The critical difference between Jesus and the Pharisees was actually how Jesus spoke of his unique resurrection. Mark chapter nine shows us the confusion. After the transfiguration, uh, it says that uh, when Jesus, Peter, James, and John come down the mountain and Jesus tells his disciples, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the son of man has risen from the dead. Seems pretty, pretty clear, right? But it says the disciples kept it to themselves. They often asked each other what he meant by rising from the dead. It was confusing to them. Now, why? Well, it wasn't because they had never heard of the idea of one final resurrection. That was the common belief of the Pharisees and thus many of them. The problem for them was that they had never heard of the idea of one singular resurrected Messiah long before all the other resurrections. Do you get, there's no mental space in their mind for that. So the apostle Paul does us all a favor and he brings together Jesus's resurrection with the Pharisees view in 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Very popular passage for you here. Okay, Paul says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the, uh, he is the first, the first of a great harvest of all who have died. There's an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest. And then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. So summing this all up to our review slide, this was the early Christian perspective. Jesus is the first fruit. He's the first fruit of the harvest. He's the unexpected resurrection before the coming final one someday. You get it? You with it? You follow the logic? Now, yeah, I see that hand in the back. Go ahead. Tyler, how does that practically apply to my life at all? It doesn't. It doesn't apply to your, it's just biblical knowledge that I think is important to know because it actually helps you to read the scripture better. Now let's get some of the practical stuff, all right? Next question. Uh, when will the final resurrection happen? When will it happen? Well, uh, does, anybody, does anybody know? Would you like to enlighten us? I will give you the microphone. Does anybody know in here? Anybody wanna take a shot at it? Okay, not seeing any hands. And that's good because after you were done with the microphone, I get the microphone back and I was going to dispel whatever myth or apocalyptic uh, craziness that you would have said from stage. Because here's what the scripture says. Jesus himself says, no one knows. No one knows the day, no one knows the time. Jesus says, I don't even know. So I would suggest to you that anyone, any preacher, any scholar, whoever, who suggests that they do know, when this is going to happen is defying scripture and taking it out of bounds. And I've heard many preachers do it because it sells books. Now, you know what the biblical answer actually is to this question? When will the first resurrection happen? Here's what the Bible says. Stay ready. No, that's not what I asked. I said, when will it happen? Stay ready. Is it gonna happen like a long time from now? Like after I die, stay ready. Is it gonna happen tomorrow? Stay ready. Will it happen before this church service is over with? 
stay ready. Like that's the, that's, that's the constant, just stay ready. Is it gonna happen in 2021? Because 2020 was crazy. I know it's gonna happen, right? Stay ready. That's the biblical answer. And again, I have heard many a preachers in my lifetime stand on stages and say, I'm absolutely certain because I can decode these end time events in this way, or I'm absolutely certain that before I die, the Jesus is gonna come back. And when they say that, I appreciate, I'm sure it's coming from the best of place and I appreciate the urgency they wanna bring to their faith, but they're operating outside of what scripture actually says. Because all scripture says to answer this question is stay ready, stay ready. And for the record, if it would change the way you live for Jesus, if you knew when he was coming back, then you just need to go ahead and change the way you live for Jesus. You know what I'm saying? Like if you were to realize, oh, well, Jesus is coming back two weeks, so I need to get my act together. Okay, I'm just gonna suggest to you that you should just go ahead and get your act together anyways. Because see, you know what you're living for? You're not living out of love for Jesus. You're living out of fear of judgment and hell. And that's not what a healthy relationship with Jesus looks like. Okay, moving on. Next question. Next question, where? We've looked at when, where? Well, now where does the final resurrection take place? According to scripture, the final resurrection happens right here. That's where. Happens right here to everything. Our bodies are resurrected and made new. The created world, the curse is lifted from it. It's resurrected and made new. In other words, someday, according to scripture, someday when Jesus comes back, we're not going to heaven. Actually, heaven is coming to us. It's a fascinating image that John paints for us. Revelation chapter 21, verses one through five. Scriptures say, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. It's new. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was gone. And I saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem. What's those words? Again, I, I dare you to, to make a noise in church or to just move. Like, to, what are the words? coming down, it's coming down, from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live in the cloud. No, it's not in the clouds. He will live with them and they'll be his people. God himself will be with him. And uh, the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. Now, uh, interesting little tidbit here. There's, there's two Greek words I want you to know. The first Greek word is uh, the Greek word parousia, parousia. You'll find it in 1 Thessalonians 4, Matthew 24, all throughout the New Testament. But in those particular passages, you'll find it in reference to Jesus's coming, right? And it's actually translated as Jesus's coming. And you know why it's translated as Jesus's coming? Because he comes to us. In fact, the word was used commonly back then to talk about when a king or an emperor would go and visit a subjected state that they were a ruler over. Here's the other Greek word I want you to know that helps you kind of realize this is a coming, it happens here. It's the Greek word for new underneath this passage in Revelation 21. Can you throw that passage up there? Again, there's this play that John does here where he's talking about there's new heaven, new earth, old heaven, old earth. Last verse there, God himself says, look, I'm making everything new. There are two Greek words for the word new, the English word new that we have. There's uh, the Greek word neos and the Greek word kainos. Here's the difference. Uh, neos, new, points to uh, quantitative newness. It would be like saying, I got a brand spanking new 2022 zero miles on it, Honda Odyssey. And yes, we are in the, the van market right now, so that's why my mind's been the past week. That's, it's, you get it, it's new brand new. 
Now, now kainos new is a bit different though. Kainos new is not quantitative newness, it's qualitative newness. So what it'd be like, it'd be like taking an old car, refurbishing it, and then bringing it back to life, even better than it was in its original state. Do you see the difference? Naos, quantity, naos, or excuse me, kainos, quality. Which one do you think John uses here? It's kainos, it's kainos new. In other words, the idea is not that God is going to rebuild creation from the ground up. No, it was good once. What he's going to do is he's going to lift the curse. He's going to sow new seed in the yard and new grass will grow. There'll be a new garden built. There'll be a fresh coat of paint put on the walls and new countertops and light fixtures and all the, I mean, Chip, Chip and Joanna, except way better. That's, that's what's gonna happen. This is the image that we get. Now, uh, that leads us to our next question. Any questions at this point? No, good. All right, next question. We'll keep moving. Uh, what will our resurrected world and bodies be like? The, these these kainos new bodies. Well, we don't know, to be honest with you. There's not a whole lot specifically that's said about it. But here's the one thing that I can tell you that we do know. Uh, they will be like what we experience now, like what we experience now, but unimaginably better. It'll be this world, but it'll be resurrected and unimaginably better. It'll be these bodies, but they'll be resurrected and unimaginably better. Again, back to Romans 8, uh, verse 22. I love the language Paul uses here. It helps us get at it, or at least imagine. It helps us imagine. Uh, Paul says, for we know that all creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. Now, I love the, the, the language here of like groaning, longing, the, like the labor pains of childbirth. I know a lot, by the way, about giving birth to children. I've had three children, three now. Don't you love it uh, when the guy, first, especially the first, you only make the, this mistake in the first pregnancy, but the guy's like, yeah, me and my wife are pregnant. <laughs> and all the girls are like, oh, sweetheart, okay, she's pregnant, not you. And the sooner you figure that out, the better off this will go, right? But, but like, so some of you, I don't know about childbirth, but some of you know about the pains of childbirth in this room, all right? And they're not comfortable. And the image Paul gives us here is he's like, hey, fast forward 10 billion years into the future on the other side of the resurrection. And here's what I can promise you. You'll look back on this life in its best moments and you'll think we were just groaning. That was just like the childbirthing process to something that much newer, that much unimaginably better. The best moments, it'll be the resurrected heaven and earth, it'll be that much better. The love there will be that much better than the most romantic moments here. The excitement there will be that much better than like a bottom of the ninth walk off, bomb ski, dog pile at home plate, like it's better. The, uh, the, uh, the peace there will be that much better than sitting on a beach, soaking in the sun with the calm ocean waves crashing in. The freedom there will be that much better than when you were like five years old playing in the backyard without a care in the world. The work there, and I do believe there will be work because it says it'll be a heavenly city. It'll it'll be a society where we are dependent on one another, right? And the work there will be that much more purposeful and meaningful than your best moments at work. 
Oh, and the beauty there. The beauty of the natural world will be that much more enchanting than the most beautiful places you can think of today. I'll show you just a few pictures here of some of the beauties of our world today. Uh, this is a picture of the Rainbow Mountains of China. This is real. Google it yourself. This is real, I'm telling you. And it's just stunning to think that the beauty of heaven will be that much better. This is a view of the northern lights from Iceland. It's crazy to think the beauty of heaven will be that much better. For my German friends, forgive me. This is the Neuschweinstein Castle in Germany. This is like a real life Disney castle, y'all. <laughs> it's crazy to think that the, the beauties of heaven will be that much better. This is Lake Louise in Alberta, Canada. And the beauties of heaven will be that much better. This is the Ashikaga Flower Park in Japan at night. And the beauties of heaven will be that much better. This is uh, the Great Barrier Reef. And that's nuts to think that, that most of the underwater world is yet to be discovered. Yet the glories and beauties of heaven will be that much better. This last shot is a photo of our city. During the most exciting week of the year for us, our city just lights up and the fun and the party and the joy of it. The whole world turns its attention on us. I love being in Louisville during Derby Week. It's just something charming and fun about it. And yet, crazy to think that on the other side of the resurrection, the heavenly city, it will make even the best moments here in the Ville seem just like groaning. The pains of childbirth, waiting for something new to come. It's that much better, y'all. C.S. Lewis said it like this in his great chapter on hope and mere Christianity. Uh, he says, as you get older and older, read the chapter for yourself, it's, it's amazing. He says, as you get older and older, what you begin to realize is that the things you thought would satisfy you here, they just don't. They might satisfy you for a moment, a night, a season, but it's fleeting over time. He said, I'm not talking about like just an average life. I'm talking about the best things in life, the very best life you can imagine living. I'm talking about if you have the best marriage and the best job and the best travel and the best pleasures in life, the very best, he says, even then you'll still realize that it just doesn't quite get you to where your heart desires to be. And then he suggests, perhaps the reason why is because you were made for another world. His famous quote, he says, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for them exists. Baby feels hunger, such a thing as food. Duckling wants to swim, such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire though, which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably, earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it to suggest the real thing. Or in other words, he's saying, think of the most wonderful things in this life and resurrection life is that 
much better. <laughs> you know, in, in my preparation to preach these three weeks on resurrection, hours upon hours of study and, and, and prayer and thought and reading went into this. And, and I was captivated this time, for the first time ever in my studies, about one particular passage. It's 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Talked about it a little bit already in this series. It's, it's the very last verse in Paul's amazing chapter on resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15. If you've ever read it, it's some of his most dense and thoughtful stuff. Basically, verses 54 through 58 sort of sum it all up. In verses 54 through 57, you see Paul says, when this imperishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Basically, he's saying Jesus is risen from the dead. One day we'll have heaven. It's an amazing promise. But then he says, therefore, because of that, third line from the bottom, he says, my beloved, be steadfast and movable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that the labor, the Lord, you know that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. In the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Now, what's he saying here? He's saying the good you do in this life, no matter how big and public it is, no matter how small and private it is, it is not done in vain. The Lord sees it and it will matter and live on in the resurrection. What a promise. This is what he's saying. He's saying all the good we do echoes into eternity. And it will be kept in the memory and built into the infrastructure of the resurrected world. I'm not exactly sure how God will memorialize it and celebrate it and build it into heaven. I'm just certain that it's there because nothing you do now is in vain. This is how N.T. Wright, world-class New Testament scholar and expert on resurrection. He, he wrote a big book on resurrection, like a thousand pages long, that saved my faith. This is how he, he describes it. He says, this brings us back to 1 Corinthians 15, 58 once more. What you do in the Lord's not in vain. This is what he says. He says, you are not oiling the wheels of a machine that's about to roll over a cliff. You're not restoring a great painting that's shortly going to be thrown in the fire. You are not planting roses in a garden that's about to be dug up for a building site. And this is what many people think. They think, well, you know, to hell within the handbasket with this world because that's where it's going. No, no, he says, no, it's not, that's not the biblical image. No, instead, you are, strange though as it may seem, Almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, you are accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every work of art or music inspired by the love of God and delight in the beauty of his creation, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or walk, every act of care and nurture, of comfort and support for one's fellow human and, for that matter, one's fellow non-human creatures, and, of course, every prayer, all spirit-led teaching, every deed that spreads the gospel, builds up the church, embraces and embodies holiness rather than corruption, and makes the name of Jesus honored in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. That's the logic of the mission of God, he writes. God's recreation of his wonderful world, which began with the resurrection of Jesus and continues mysteriously as God's people live in the risen Christ and in the power of his spirit, means that what we do in Christ and by the spirit in the present is not wasted. Embrace this hope today, y'all. It will all last 
into God's new world. In fact, it will be enhanced there. It's from his, his book, Surprised by Hope. Go read the whole thing this week. Now, I agree with his sentiment, but I would even take it one step further. Not only will our good acts live on, but I actually believe that all the moments when we persevere faithfully through evil and suffering, those will live on as well. In fact, I believe that all things that have gone wrong will be made untrue. All the evil and suffering we persevere now will be undone and made right in the resurrection, redeemed, if you will. I read a story recently in a book that I think illustrates this really well. Some of you guys may remember uh, from 2019, the El Paso shooting. You remember this? Another just tragic, horrifying act of gun violence. A man with a long gun went into a Walmart Before you know it, 23 people dead, 23 more injured. Devastating. Now, one of the ladies who was was killed that day is a lady named Marty, uh, Margie uh, Ricard. Margie Ricard. She's a 63-year-old woman. She was shopping for groceries that Saturday like she does every single Saturday. And she left behind her husband, Antonio Basco, who you'll see in these pictures here. Uh, Basco had no family in El Paso. He had no children. Said he had very few friends. And so after Margie's death, he would go out to her memorial site and bring flowers every day. It was said that he would spend hours out there, sometime from morning to evening. He was even caught sometimes sleeping at night next to the memorial. This last picture captures the grief on his face. Poor God lost everything. The funeral uh, home director uh, said he reached out to, to Antonio and he said, how can I help you? And Antonio expressed to him his fears. He said, I'm afraid that I'm gonna be alone forever. He said, I'm, I'm afraid right now that there's not gonna be anybody who shows up at my wife's funeral. We don't have any, any friends. Well, the funeral director uh, was so moved by this that he took one of the pictures of Antonio at the memorial and a little bit of a story and posted it on social media and it went viral. He basically said, hey, this is Antonio's story. Can we just show him a little El Paso love? And man, did they ever show him love. It says, on the day of uh, the visitation, more than 3,000 people showed up, some waiting hours to envelop Antonio in hugs. At Margie's funeral, Basco uh, Basco entered a venue packed with 400 supporters with 700 more waiting outside in the Texas heat, wrapped a half mile round the block. One supporter flew in from San Francisco and attended the funeral, never met him. Another woman drove six hours and waited an additional two just to hug Basco, never met him. El Paso resident Victor Perales said that he and his wife came to the funeral and I quote, to give Basco a hug and let him know that we'll be his family. And there were hundreds more just like him. They did a GoFundMe campaign that raised over $41,000 for him. And Basco, in response to this said, he had never felt so much love in his entire life. And man, he needed it in that moment, didn't he? Let me read that to you again. He said, I never felt so much love in 
in my entire life. And I believe this will be the refrain of heaven. This story gives us an image of heaven, of how all the sufferings that we have experienced will fade away in the radiant brilliance of the love of God. All that's wrong will be undone and we will look at each other and say, I've never felt loved like this ever before in my entire life. This is the beauty that we get to await. Now that leads us to a last point today and we're going to take communion at the end of this. So if you would, go ahead and pull out your communion, bread in the cup. I'm gonna read to you our last question. Last, what makes the resurrection so unimaginably wonderful then, Tyler? You're telling me it's better than we could have imagined. Why? Well, here's why. It's because there we will experience the full presence of our God who is love finally and forever. That's, that's what makes it truly great. It's not the bodies. It's not the, the world, although that will be great. It's the God who will be there. Revelation 22 says, no longer will there be a curse upon anything. Why? For the throne of God and the lamb will be there and his servants will worship him and they'll see his face <laughs> and his name will be written on their foreheads. 21.4, he'll wipe every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things gone forever and I can't wait for it but you know what makes all these things gone forever it's who will be there that's what excites me about heaven not what won't be there but who will and that's our Jesus the groom and the bride will finally come together Revelation 19 actually describes it as a, as a wedding feast. It says, then I heard what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd, the roar of mighty ocean waves, the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord is the shout. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us be glad. Let us rejoice. Let us give honor to him for the time has come. Finally, it should say finally there. Finally, for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. <laughs> you see, there's this groom, Jesus, and there's this bride, the church, and they can't wait to be together. And one day they'll finally be together. I want to show you a picture. This is a picture from my wedding day of me and my wife, Lindsay. For those of you who don't know, this beautiful and gifted worship leader that leads us many weeks um, is my wife. And uh, we were married almost 10 years ago. Here's a picture of us in a field because that's what married people get picked. We've never been to the field before, but we, there, there it is. Um, we got pictures in front of a barn we've never been before too. Before too. Um, there it is. <laughs> I didn't even forgot that one was in there. Nice D. <laughs> um, yeah. That was a great day. I remember in the days leading up to it, uh, Lindsay's dad was like razzing me about it. I, he, I went to his house one time and he had a shirt on that said, guns don't kill people, dads with pretty daughters do. Okay. And uh, you know, it's classic. But if, if you know Jeff, he's always been like one of the most gentle, godly, encouraging men. He's a preacher and he encouraged me to preach as a preacher. He's a man of God. So he's encouraged me as the husband to his daughter. But but here's what I know, as encouraging as he's been to me, I know that the night before Lindsay and I got married, Lindsay went upstairs to her dad's office and she sat in her dad's lap and he took his little baby, 23-year-old girl in his arms and they cried, they cried. 
Because there ain't a dad in the world who looks forward to the day when they'll finally give their daughter away. But scripture tells us God looks forward to the day when the groom and the bride will finally be together. I remember uh, on, our, on our wedding day, at, at the very end, Jeff, her dad, and Bill, my father, both preachers, and they thank their part-time comedians, were officiating the service. And they got to the end, and, and my dad was like, well, Tyler, by the power vested in me by the state of Indiana and by God Almighty, I now pronounce you husband and wife. Tyler, you may now kiss your... And then Jeff cut in. He's like, well, Bill, well, hold on a second. I've got something else to say. And he starts talking for 20, 30 seconds. And then he's like, so with that being said, Tyler, you may now kiss your... And my dad then cuts in. He's like, well, Jeff, I've, just, I've got something else to say. And they're like razzing me in my, in my big moment. So you know what Lindsay did? She just sort of shrugged her shoulders and she took their moment away. And she grabs me and she lays this big old kiss right on me. You can see I'm like surprised in the picture because I didn't know it was coming. And I'll never forget that moment. I'll never forget the moment when we walked out of the church. One of my friends took a cell phone shot. It's not even a good picture, but I, just, I can remember feeling like, oh, we made it. We're together. We're married. And it's just so hard for me to believe that that moment is just an anticipation of something far, far better that we'll all experience someday when the bride and the groom finally meet. But it is. These are just birth pains, groanings that we get the blessing of experiencing now. And every single week, that's what we remember when we partake of communion. Remember Jesus' body and blood when we take the bread and the cup. But we also anticipate one day when we will have Jesus's physical body before us and we'll be able to commune with our Lord. In fact, every week when we take this small meal, we anticipate the wedding feast of the lamb. So let us remember his love, but as we partake of this today, let us anticipate the fullness of his love one day. So we take the bread and drink the cup.